first reading is from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men and women shall dream dreams. And your young men and women shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, reading from the New Testament is from Luke chapter 8, verses, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. There were two men. They went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. So I was in a project a number of years ago designed by a Presbyterian theologian. That's right, it's dangerous. And the project was set up like this. His idea was, if we could figure out how young people should live their lives, every aspect of their lives, so that it was Christian, we could change the world. So he hired 18 theologians, some of the best theologians he could find from around the United States. And he had each theologian get a teenager, a 14-year-old. And we were going to spend three years uh, at a series of gatherings figuring out how young people should eat, how they should make decisions, how they should spend their money, what kinds of material goods they could have. We were going to study every aspect of a teenager's life and figure out what's the Christian way to do this particular uh, uh, part of the human life. And so we would get together at these retreat centers or at hotel conference centers, and um, these theologians would do what they love to do, which is they would get up and they would lecture and talk, and they, they would pass out chapters from theology books, uh, Karl Barth and Paul Tillich, and, and of course, you know, the teenagers that most of these 
professors brought, you know, were these kids who want to perform, they want to be liked, they want to do the right thing, and so they, even though they had all their homework and everything they had to be doing at these conferences, they would set it aside and they would read all this theology about the nature of the Trinity and all this kind of stuff. Well, I was the only one there without a PhD, the only one who actually had experience working with young people, and I realized this is killing the souls of these kids. <laughs> and so after a year of these conferences, and we would have discussions from 9 in the morning until 5, have dinner, then we would have a two-hour uh, uh, time of conversation, then we would have a traditional worship service, and then the kids would go off to the hotel rooms to do their homework. And it was just awful. So we're in the... We're in the Hyatt Regency in Chicago, and um, after we had the dinner, we had the evening meeting, it's about 9 o'clock at night, and I said, hey, just a message to all the young people here, we've got one more meeting we need to do tonight, just we want to go through uh, what Paul Tillich meant by the ground of being, and so we'll be discussing it in my room, please show up, here's my room number, we'll be there at 10 o'clock tonight, and the kids, you know, they want to be good kids, they want to be liked, you know, they want, they said, okay, we'll be there. They all show up to my room. In my room, I've got a little whiteboard that I stole from one of the conference rooms. I've got written on there, Team A, Team B. Under Team A, I have the list of half of the kids, their names. Under Team B, the other kids. And I say, okay, here's the deal. So I got these napkins from the dining catering center downstairs. Stole them. And uh, we're going to be playing a game called Capture the Flag. Here's how we play. Team A, your floors are going to be the even numbers. Floor 20, 22, 24, 26, all the way up to 30. Uh, team B, you're going to be the odd-numbered rooms, 21, 23, 25, all the way uh, up to 31. Now, these, uh, these little ice machines here on the 22nd floor and the 29th floor, those are going to be the jails. That's where when you capture you put them there. The elevator is neutral. You can't tag anybody in the elevator. The elevator is Switzerland. Okay? Now, I said, if you notice, I also put the professor's names. They're also playing, and you can see their names. They're on each side. Now, remember... The professors are really smart. So when you grab one of these professors and you start to take them to jail, they're going to say things like, what are you doing? I don't understand. <laughs> What's going on? Don't listen to them. Don't be fooled. Just take them to the ice machine in the jail. They have to stay there until they're tagged out. Now, another thing. It's possible security might be called. Now, when we had come in, into the lobby, you know, they would have these signs, like, you know, welcoming the different groups who were meeting in the hotel. And I happened to see a little sign that uh, was a welcome to the executive leadership of the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> so I said to the kids, if security's called, if you get grabbed by security, just say, I'm with the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> this is part of our mission training, and have them call them. So I sent all the kids, everybody goes off to play the game. There's two scenes I can't forget. One is, I'm up on the 23rd floor, I'm with a kid, 14-year-old boy named Alex Campbell. He and I are, are, are sneaking down the hallway, we think we know where the flag is, and all of a sudden I hear this screaming. We look around the corner, and there is Dr. Frank Rogers, professor of spiritual life at Claremont School of Theology, except he's horizontal. His hands are inside the elevator. He's pushing the emergency alarm while two kids are pull pulling on his leg. And he's yelling, this is Switzerland! This is Switzerland! The other 
scene I remember. Different floor. I've got with two kids this time. We're coming around the corner. All of a sudden, one of the, the rooms, the door to one of the rooms opens up. There's a guy in a business suit. He says, get in here. I said, what? He says, just get in here. So we all jump in there. He shuts the door and he said, there's an ambush around the corner. I said, who are you? He said, doesn't matter. I'm just a guy at a conference. He goes, whatever you guys are doing, I want in. We said, great, you're our scout. So he would walk up into the aisles and take notes and come back and tell us what was going on so we could... Well, this game goes on for almost two and a half hours. All the professors are dragged out of their rooms. They don't know what's going on. Some are in their pajamas and robes and things like this. They're tagged. They're put in jail. We're playing this thing. Security's called many, many times. <laughs> Southern Baptist leadership has woken up. They, they probably thought it was the rapture. <laughs> and then... About 11.30 at night, all the, flag, the flags have been caught, game was over, we all go down. I say, hey, let's all go down into the, to the uh, hotel restaurants. And we go down to the lobby, I mean, the lobby floor, we go into the restaurant. You know, these places are some of the loneliest places in the world, you know, these hotel I travel a lot, and it's just people on the road, anonymous. But we go in there like the circus has come to town. And I'm like, I know I've got kids, I know they're not allowed after the time, but just make an exception. You know, we just played this amazing game, and, and so the waitresses go, okay. So we get in the corner, we get pictures of... Shirley Temple's drinks, we get breadsticks, we're sitting around the table, and suddenly it's no longer PhDs and teenagers. Suddenly it's people just with stories to tell. And they're talking about, I saw you around the corner, and that was an amazing move you made. You remember when we caught you here, and everybody's telling all these stories, and we're drinking the 7-Up, and we're talking, and all this stuff, and it just quiets down for a moment. And I said, hey, can I have everybody's attention? I said, you know this feeling right now you're having around this table? This is what the kingdom of God feels like. This is that energy that Jesus is trying to draw out in us. If, if it, you don't sense this kind of playfulness, this kind of equality, this kind of holy mischief, then you have to wonder whether you're doing something of God. All the theology, all the hymns, all the worship is to wake up life in us so that we might have this kind of of um, curiosity and playfulness, even when we're seeking to heal dark and destructive things. This is what it feels like. It's so difficult in this day and age. I mean, all I see there's young people here, and, and they know what they're being prepared for. They know they're being sent out into a world where they're going to be judged. Are you a winner? Or are you a loser? What's everybody asking these young people as they graduate from school, go to high school, get into college? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And they know they better have the right answer. Don't say English. Don't say you're studying English. <laughs> if you say you're studying English, you know what the next question is. Are you going to be a teacher? If you say, no, I thought I'd write something, then you see the look of concern. <laughs> right? You may not make it in this world. You can't just do that. You can't do your passions. You're being judged. You have to be a winner. And so we under, I understand why uh, uh, this theology professor, this Presbyterian professor, was trying to figure out if we could just get everything right, where, where students knew how to eat right and spend their money correctly and make decisions, if we could tell them exactly what to do, then maybe they would reach God. How many of us have been going to church for years and years, Bible study classes, spiritual practices, and we're really not that different? We're still the kind of basic person we were 30 years ago. We still have the same problems we thought would be healed by now. 
We were, you know, we thought by the time I'm 40 or 50, you know, I'm going to have it figured out. Let me just, a little word to those of you who are younger. None of these adults have it figured out. They have no idea. Some of them are thinking about chucking everything and starting over, and they're 65. Right? This is, but we hide all this. We, we, we think that the only way to protect ourselves is to hide everything that's broken, everything that's unhealed, everything unfixed, and to try to um, attain some kind of spiritual perfection. And one of the deep sadnesses is when we recognize that God has no interest in our spiritual perfection project. No interest. What God seeks is um, honesty, realness. You see, God is found in reality. And we don't like to be in reality. You see the Pharisee in the story today, and he's, he's talking about all the good things he's doing, still trying to prove to himself and to God that, uh, that he's worthy, that he has worth, that he has value, unable to just accept himself as he is and meet God where he is. And we struggle from the same thing. So the work of the spiritual life, you see, all, all spiritual wisdom, all spiritual truth, you can't attain it. It's free. You just have to receive it. And receiving it means being present to who you are just as you are. And that's what we don't like. We're okay with being with God. I don't want to be with me. Some of you wondering where God is. God's waiting in your anger that it's too difficult to admit is there. God's waiting in your depression. God's waiting in your doubt. God's waiting in those longings that you keep trying to stuff down. They're, they're too painful to speak. All those unhealed places uh, that you're unwilling to be with is where God waits. And the work of humility, you know, humility, the, the word comes from, from a word that means earth, hummus. It means being grounded. It means being present to who you are. If you're willing to be present to who you are, that's where God is. And the invitation is to simply be embraced as you are with all those unhealed places. Father Henry Nouwen, a writer, Catholic priest, died about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, taught at Yale, taught at Harvard, spent the last 10 years of his life at a L'Arche community working with developmentally disabled folks. And he was uh, one day walking, he was the priest there, and one day he's walking across on his way busy to a meeting, uh, a woman named Jennifer with Down syndrome, sees him walking by, comes up to him and says, Father, Father, I want a blessing. He's busy. He's on his way somewhere. So he just turns and he makes the sign of the cross on her forehead. Says, in the name of the Father. And the son, she knocks his hand away. She says, not like that. Do it right. Do it in the mass. This, at, at that community, at the end of every day, they would have a little service, a little mass, Catholic mass, for all the people that lived there and everyone who worked there. So he didn't know what she was talking about, but he was used to this kind of honesty from these people. So he said, okay, I'll do it in the Mass. He goes to his meeting. End of the day comes. Uh, the community's gathered in the little chapel there. And he sees Jennifer and he remembers, oh yeah, she wants a blessing. So he says, Jennifer, why don't you come up? I want to give you a blessing. She's coming up and he, and he writes, I was trying to figure out what I needed to say so she would feel it was right. But as I was sort of gathering my words, she just walked up, grabbed my arms, wrapped them around her, put her arms around me, and placed her head on my shoulder. 
He said, so I just turned to her and just said into her ear, Jennifer, you are God's beloved. And with you, God is well pleased. And then she just stayed there. So I just held her until she was ready to let go. And then she went and she sat down. He said, as soon as she sat down, there was a college student, an intern, was working there who raised his hand. And I said, yeah, Steve. And he said, could I get one of those blessings? <laughs> he said, I said, sure. So Steve walked up. And I wrapped him in my robes and I put his head on my shoulder. And I said, Steve, you are God's beloved. With you, God is well pleased. He said, as soon as I released him, people started standing up all over the little chapel and moving into the aisle, started coming forward to get these blessings. Now, I have to be honest, if I was, when I read that, if I happened to be in that chapel sitting in the back and everybody stood up and started going forward, I would have been back there going, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> We're never getting out of here. And I also would have been like, you know, just hoping enough people stayed seated so I could stay seated too, pretending to be in prayer. And if they all started to go forward, you know, I would have gotten behind them and I would have looked with that, you know, smile like, oh, this is wonderful. But we're doing this long thing that's going to last another 15 minutes. And then I would have gone all the way up front and I would have put my head on the shoulder, heard those words. But, you know, a part of me wouldn't have believed it. I mean, I, I mean, I've talked about God's love a hundred thousand times, it feels like, Sunday school classes and sermons and everything else. But a part of me would have said, yes, when you say I'm God's beloved, you mean the good part, the part that's trying, the part that does things well. You don't mean the messed up part of me, the helpless part, the broken parts, the parts I don't even want to fix anymore because I'm too tired. And that's the work right there. The work is to allow yourself to be embraced. All of who you are. The work of the spiritual life, a lot of it, is simply self-acceptance. This is who I am. This is me. This, this is, and allowing yourself to meet God in that real place. That's where humility begins. And as we learn to allow ourselves to be embraced, we learn how to embrace ourselves. That's the great suffering. You know, the great suffering is we keep saying, God, would you fix this? Would you change this? You know, God's not doing what we want God to do. We try all the magical prayers and all the magical rituals, and it's not helping. And the invitation is to allow yourself to embrace yourself. You know the, the great teaching Jesus says, love others as you love yourself. For many of you, you need to reverse it. Love yourself the way you love others. So many of us have that inner voice of self-hatred. We speak to ourselves, within ourselves, in a way that we would never speak to another human being. Never. What would it mean to begin to receive God's kindness and treat yourself with the same respect and dignity and compassion that God offers you that you know how to offer others? 
What if you turn that to yourself? And as we begin to embody that kind of love, we come home to ourselves. It's a, it's a relief. We stop trying to be more than we are and accept our real gifts and accept our real wounds in a way that, that causes us to be more uh, empathic and compassionate to the suffering in others. You know why people drive us crazy? Because they remind us of us. Right? The people who drive you most nuts are usually embodying something that's in you. And until you learn to love and receive and have some compassion for that place in you, you you're not able to offer that same kind of compassion to others. That's the work, is that we receive that embrace, learn how to embrace our own lives, and then go out to embrace others, even difficult others, even those we call enemies. So um, I'll just end with this, this image. A woman, up, I was up in Winnipeg, Canada. I told that story of Henry Nowen and the hug and hearing that name, you're my beloved. There was a woman there from hospice, a chaplain worked with the dying. And she, was, um, she wrote me a letter about six months after that retreat. She said, I'm working in hospice. We get a woman who comes in who is just filled with bitterness and anger. She's in her early 40s, and her life had been incredibly hard. She, she had, she had, her mother had died when she was young. She was the oldest. She ended up taking care of her younger sisters. Her dad, she said my dad was basically depressed and checked out, often just stayed at the bar, didn't come home. So I rose, uh, raised my siblings. I dropped out of high school at 16 because I could get a full-time job waitressing. That money could support us. I worked all the way up till I was 19 or 20, got married. I really wanted to have a family. We tried for eight years. We weren't able to have kids. And then I find out that my husband's having an affair. He has kids with this new woman, leaves me. I ended up getting married again. This man was abusive to me. And now at 40 years old, I get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And this is my life. This is it. And she was filled with anger. She had no faith. She did not believe in God. It just felt like life had been nothing but cruel. And this pastor said, I didn't know what to do. I just told her that this suffering person, this person who had suffered so much injustice and so much pain, that that's not all that she was. There was a deeper identity, that she was God's beloved. And I told her this story of Henry Nowen and Jennifer and the hug. And she listened. And she didn't argue. And then I said, can I brush your hair? She said, yeah. And so I would just brush her hair. And I would just say, you are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. She said, I did this for two or three weeks. And then she fell into a coma. And even though she was in a coma, I would still come to her room. And I would brush her hair. And I would say into her ear, God's beloved, over and over and over again. And one day, three days after she'd gone to this coma, she, her eyes opened, and she woke up. And she asked for water. I got her a little glass of water, and she drank it. And then she looked at me in the faintest voice, with my ear pressed to her lips. She said, would you keep telling me that I'm the beloved? And so for the rest of that afternoon, I just brushed her hair and said to her again and again, her true name 
her real identity. You are God's beloved. And with you, God is well pleased. Until she passed away. This is our work. The hardest work is to receive that love that frees us so that our creative powers that God given us might break through, so that our hearts might be vulnerable to others. It's that vulnerability that is holiness, not perfection. It's vulnerability that is holiness, the ability to open your arms and receive that embrace and hear your true name. Amen.